Welcome to Brokerage Insider, the podcast where we interview the leaders in real estate and technology. I'm your host, Britt Chester, Director of Marketing Success at Tribus, one of the largest independent prop tech companies in real estate and provider of custom brokerage technology to medium and large brokerages. Today on the show, we have Stephanie Kroll, a broker associate with Mile High Modern, Denver's definitive resource for modern architectural property, new developments, and classical collection homes. Stephanie's expertise in Denver's real estate market is remarkable. I'm excited for this discussion. Stephanie, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on Brokerage Insider. Of course. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I I think I was able to provide a little bit of an introduction, but uh, if you would, for our listeners, just kind of talk about about who you are and, and where you're at and what your kind of specialty is right now. Yeah, so I am a real estate broker with Mile High Modern. Um, I started in the real estate business a few years ago after a very tumultuous first-time home buying experience of my own on a personal level. Um, and I'm also a Denver native. My family has um, owned properties in the Denver area since the 1970s, and um, we've, you know, everybody is here in different pockets of the Denver metro. Um, you know, and we've been here for multiple generations now. So I, feel, I like to think that I'm a, an expert in the Denver Metro area because we've lived here for so long. Um, but yeah, I, I really focus most of my energy on properties of architectural merit, specifically mid-century modern homes. I've found a lot of success in niching out within that particular architecture type, um, especially because our market just has a lot of them. Um, but also because I have a passion for the design itself. <laughs> uh, let's talk about how, how you got into real estate and kind of what you were doing before in your journey into this uh, as a career choice. I know a little bit of it, but I, I'd love to hear it from you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, well, I mean, I did a bunch of different things, um, you know, within my entire professional career, but I, um, my background is in marketing. I got a business marketing degree from Steve Boulder. And my first like big time job was out in LA. I worked for Hulu for a few years um, in marketing and in ad operations. I ended up coming back about two years later. And when I did that, um, I was kind of like getting my hands into some other marketing jobs. And I specifically took on a job working for music venues in the Golden Triangle. (laughs) And um, just, I was the marketing director for them, was pretty much tasked with really revamping the entire marketing department there because what I had walked into, I didn't have a whole lot to work with and they really didn't have a lot of like pre-existing systems or anything like that. And so I kind of had to build a team to support all of their venues. And in doing that, I was um, not only exposed to a lot of the different partners on the Golden Triangle Board of Directors, like the Denver Art Museum and Service Center Conservancy, but then also um, one of the venues that we worked with was the church. And I just was like so fascinated by, as I was doing all this historic research on the building, uh, I mean, it's this amazing, incredible church um, on the corner of, I think it's like 12th and Sherman or 12th and Lincoln. that has just like stood the test of time. It's been converted into a music venue, but it was just a really special space to me. And as I was doing more research, I like was learning about what you had to do to preserve the building. And there was just a lot that came like with the documentation of that building. And as I was doing more research on it for basically just like marketing material. So 
I became like infatuated with like the concept of preserving historic buildings and that really translated I mean that was kind of a piece of it right but the mid-century thing also stemmed from my time living in Los Angeles it was very much a big deal there very much a part of the culture there's like amazing vintage stores all over central Los Angeles and of course it's like the mecca of mid-century modern architecture and then when I was working with SoCo I also bought my first home in Harvey Park which is also like a mecca of mid-century modern design and architecture um and it's like it, I was just like blown away like the Cliff May homes were I was obsessed with them I like and even like the Carrie Holiday homes like all of them were just so cool to me and I was like I don't know I was just hooked like I would I was already pretty into it but I was like just seeing how much architecture we had here and how like many homes we had to work with here that were of that design um really like blew my mind and as I started doing more, more historic research it was just like incredible to see what presence we had here and how many we got really lucky with some incredible um architects that were you know they traveled here after world war ii and they were in boulder and the denver metro and they just designed some incredibly unique properties and so um, i just became fascinated by that and i built yeah. a business around it which is crazy let's talk let's talk about that you mentioned that first time home buying experience um not yeah. not being i wouldn't want to say ideal uh, first off when when did you buy it so i bought my house in 20 18. I've actually since sold it actually too. Okay. Um, because some homes are lessons. They're not meant to be enjoyed, but, um, I had it for probably about a year and a half. I, so, I mean, and I think that this story will resonate with a lot of people who are purchasing now, because I think that the market conditions are similar, if not more intense, right. Especially on the buy side. So I think that's like why I'm actually really, I mean, I'm good on both sides of the business, but I was, like, I think I've been a particularly strong buyer's agent for my clients in finding the deal and making sure they get what they need because of my own experience and like just making sure that they're guided properly. Right. Because I don't know that I necessarily was. <laughs> um, so the tricky part about my situation was that my dad was my real estate broker <laughs> which it's just like hard working with family and real estate in general it doesn't really matter how that works whether you're like your family's a client or whatever like it's always just tricky right like the whole dynamic was tricky and I looked at homes for over a year and a half um pretty consistently actually and I looked at over 150 properties which was a lot wow <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> all, all over Denver or, I mean, how are you, how did you um, kind of, um, what was your, you know, first time buying process? Like, did you have a list of wants and a list of needs or what was that kind of like? I mean, I wasn't really guided to do that. I do that now with my clients. I have them come up with a top three wants, needs and deal breakers list every single time I have like an initial conversation, but, um, I didn't have that. So I was just kind of like, at that point, I just was like, I just want a house. Right. And I almost like ended up in some random things. I'm like so glad they didn't work out. I fell in love with this amazing home in like a different neighborhood where again, I wouldn't have like had the path that I am on now had I like ended up in some of these different neighborhoods, but there was an incredible deal and I missed out on it. And now the house is worth like literally three times what it was worth when I was looking at it, right? Or like just like random neighborhoods. Like I almost wanted to contract on a house in like Lowry, which is so like now I'm like, I'm never on the East side. It would have been like terrible for my lifestyle. Like I'm so glad that none of these things worked out because my criteria was just like, 
I just think I was like so desperate to get into a house that I didn't really have like this is like awful to say but I just like wanted to get in the game like I didn't really have like high standards I was like okay well if it looks okay mm-hmm. then I'm in like I'll just write an offer if I kind of like it and truthfully a lot of the stuff that I was seeing was just like so rough like major structural problems you know like <laughs> it was a bit scary at times you know just like yeah. like this is a really rough neighborhood or like I don't know it, it, but I saw so many homes and it became basically like a part-time job for me over such a long period of time. I was like, I could totally do this as a business, you know? Um, so then when I found, I mean, and I looked at so many homes, I put in over 25 offers and I was, I was just tired. Like this is back in 2018 too, which is nothing like even the I market know. is now, but it was still pretty hot, you know, three yeah, years ago. Like I think buyers are still submitting sometimes in this market, like 10 offers. And I mean, like, I'm sure people feel similarly, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. sometimes you just have to like, keep playing the game until you get into the house, right? Yep. So I was kind of in a similar position and I kind of so I found this house that in that market, I mean, still things were going like wildfire. And I found this place that had like, was on the market, had been under contract like once or twice and then gone back on. And I was like, well, maybe there's just, I just needed like an opportunity, like someone who was gonna like hear out my case and just be like, all right, sweet. Like, because <laughs> I just like lost out so many times. Um, and like, you know, again, I think I can attribute some of that to just like the team I had around me. I mean, it's really important on the buy side to have like a really strong lender, a really strong broker, a really strong inspector. And like across the board, like I really didn't feel like I had any of that. Well, I had a great, I had to fire my first lender and get another lender, but like across the board, I really had, I, when I started the process, I did not have any of those things, you know, and it's important to have like an A team all the time. So again, that's another thing I like to bring into my buy side process. But so when I found this house, it seemed like a major opportunity to me. So I was like, all right, we're just going to go for it. Like, whatever, right? So I write an offer, they counter me, and I like negotiated down in like a crazy market. So, and even the counter was like below asking. And so I was like, sweet, (laughs) like I got an an awesome opportunity here. And so we went under contract. And I thought it was really weird because they didn't change the status in MLS for like four or five days. And I was like, oh, okay. Like we're under contract, right? Like, I don't really know. And they kept it on the market through the weekend, basically. Technically they did because they didn't change the status. So they had all these- To field more offers maybe? Yeah, I think that was the point. But they, I mean, it was totally like sketch. Like the whole thing was not, everything about this whole situation was sketch from the beginning. I should have seen it as a red flag, but- Anyway, so um, we go into contract. They, they must have gotten a ton of backup offers above asking because all of a sudden on Monday, they're like, we have to submit earnest money and like the tune kind of changes a little bit, right? And so they're like, oh, hey, um, just so you know, there's a lien on the title and we didn't pay a contractor because the house had been like flipped before I bought it mm-hmm. and not well, we'll put it that way. Yeah, for sure. And they were like, yeah, like there's a lien on the title. You can't actually buy this house. And so I was like, kind of calling the bluff. I was like, I don't believe you because you've been under contract twice. You almost closed twice. People would have seen this before. I don't know why this would have come up right now. And like, it just seemed like a ploy to kind of get me to terminate. And I was like, well, I'm just going to wait for the title work to come through and just see what's on the title work. And I had all of this in writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, technically, <laughs> I probably had some sort of grounds to like legally go after the seller at this point, but like mm-hmm. 
because what happened was the title work came back clean, right? So I was right, called their bluff. And at the time also, my inspection deadlines were like very fast. And the advice that was given to me was don't pay for an inspection if the title work isn't gonna come back clean anyways. So I don't get an inspection in time and I miss my inspection objection deadline and it doesn't get moved out. I'm a first time home buyer. I have no idea what this is about. Like I, right. I am, like, I'm like, I don't think this is the right thing to do, but like, okay, I trust you. You're my dad. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So um, basically the title work comes back clean. And so I'm like, well, I need to get an inspection on this house. Right. And I do. And it's really, really, really rough. Right. Good. Like pretty bad. Like it was everything that had been done to the house was all cosmetic. It needed a new roof. It needed, there were like a bunch of extra furnaces, just like old furnaces in the crawl space that needed to be like cut into little pieces and taken out. My inspector also missed a ton of stuff. There were like galvanized steel pipes, corroded water. There was a raccoon living in the fireplace. There was like, it was like, seriously, like your worst nightmare of an inspection. It was like my inspection. Like every yeah. single major system like needed to be replaced. But at this point I'd missed my inspection termination deadline. So you can't terminate. Cause like, then you're not acting in good faith and you lose your earnest money, right? Right. So I'm like, okay, well, I guess I have to like move forward with buying this house. Like I don't really have much of a choice, right? Sounds so, like an absolute nightmare scenario, but a great yeah. starting point, right? It's only, yeah. it only can go get, get better from here. Oh my God, it was just crazy. Like the whole thing was crazy. Anyways, I buy the house. The first week is a total trip. It was like so hard to live in that place. They put all this money into it right away to just start fixing all these issues because it was like, just so rough and then my neighbor even like committed suicide a week into me living in the house sorry to hear that it was crazy like crazy things happened in the house and i'm just yeah. glad <laughs> so were you were you working were you still working with those the venues um while you're kind of going through this process yeah. so i was going through the whole process and i was like no buyer should go through this process and have to experience the things that I experienced. Like it should never be this bad. The seller was rough, the listing agent was rough, the buyer's agent didn't like properly represent me. And I was like, this was a train wreck. And I had just seen so many agents like do bad things in my process that I was like, there, I know there's other good ones out there and I've seen that now, of course, right? But at the time I was like, this sucks. Like there needs to be better representation for people out there. And I truly believe that I'm the person to do it. And at this time, I'm also like trying to figure out, I want to do a career change. I'm like, maybe I'll be a therapist. I love psychology and like human behavior. And of course, I mean, what is basically more like therapy than real estate? It's like, you see every right. single guy into a person's personality. Right. right. And like, you really see their true colors come out in the middle of the most stressful transaction of their lives. Right. Yeah. Or like not even stressful, just expensive. So the biggest. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I felt truly called to be like a leader and like do this differently and and just do right by the people who were my clients. And um, I mean, I think sometimes from pain comes <laughs> a lot of like joy, right? Like you have to go through some really hard things to end up in a really good place sometimes, and that just so happened to be my situation. But. Um, yeah, it's kind of what like fueled me to get into the business, but I just was like, I just like hit the ground running from there. I was so excited and I loved the whole industry and I had so much passion behind it. And like the design for me, just like all of the creativity that goes into like interiors and 
especially the mid-century thing I just think it's so cool like I'm like fascinated by modernism and so it it just really like fueled me in so many different ways to like want to help other people you know Mm -hmm. when so when did you get when did you get your license um I technically got my license in 2019 so I mean I'm still like relatively newer to the business kind of but like I don't really feel that way like I feel like I've been through so many transactions at this point you know I've done everything from like dealing with mountain property that has like wells and like septic tanks which is like a whole different type of offer right to like I mean I've I've truly done everything like new construction condos like you name it like I've it's because it's interesting, right? Because I niche out in mid-century modern and a lot of people will come through the mid-mod door and be like really interested in that, right? And then it's very fascinating to see how people sometimes pivot. It's like, we'll be starting to look at mid-century modern and sometimes they just only care about good designs. Then we're looking at like Tudors in Park Hill. Like it's a totally, people sometimes pivot and that's fine. And I want them to know that like, I will work with them regardless of what they end up in. Like, I don't really care. I just like, I do think that I have an eye for good design. And so if a client wants to work with me, typically I, I like to think that I can usually find them the most beautiful home regardless of the style. But there are a lot of people too who work with me who like want to be in specific neighborhoods and I do everything I can to get them into that neighborhood. Even if there's no inventory, mm-hmm. I am pretty connected in the mid-century modern neighborhoods at this point. And I have eyes and ears on the ground from Littleton to Arapahoe Acres and Englewood to Harvey Park to Virginia Village. like you name it, I like kind of have people in all sorts of different pockets and they'll tell me about stuff going on in their neighborhood and what they're seeing. And so it's really great because I have I have a lot of intel that I think a lot of other people don't have access to. Yeah, and that really, insider knowledge. Yeah, I felt really grateful for that. And I think I attribute that to the fact that like when I meet people, it's really important to me to develop like an authentic and real relationship with them, regardless of if they're like a client or not, right? Like, I don't really care. It's really more for me about like fostering really healthy friendships and making sure that like people know that they can trust me and that I'm there for them. And I think people just reciprocate that and they'll either like send me client referrals or write reviews or tell me about, you know, stuff going on in the neighborhood, things of that nature. So yeah. I've been really lucky in that regard, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and you mentioned a lot of the neighborhoods and, you know, for a lot of our listeners that uh, may not be in Denver, these are just kind of yeah. kind of surrounding pockets. Um, and I'd love for you to talk about more, talk more about those uh, in a minute. One yeah. thing, um, last week we had uh, Nobu Hada, who's the CEO of the Denver Metro Association of Realtors. He said that one in four Denver renters currently kind of can't afford a home right now or can't find a home in Denver. And I yeah. think that, that speaks to a lot of things, right? You know, Denver's population has doubled over the past 10 years. Um, we're seeing record low inventory numbers. And I think, you know, this is nationwide. Whenever I speak to a lot of our broker clients, inventory is going to be an issue everywhere. I think last year was this big expediter uh, for people wanting to buy a home and they were, may have been planning a year out and bump that up, you know, during the pandemic. Um, kind of speak to the to the Denver market, your view of the Denver market right now, uh, and how you've seen it change. Well, it blows my mind, right? Because it's like when I was here as a kid in the '90s, a house was like 60k, 90k. You're like, what? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like a totally different place now, and the vibe is so different. And I think it really started popping off when I moved back here in 2013 from LA. Like, it, I just saw like building like I'd never seen before, and traffic, and like you know, it was just a totally different space. It was super trendy 
be there's all these cool restaurants you know what i mean uh, um, yeah i think in terms of real estate itself you know it's kind of one of those things especially first time for first time home buyers where it's like the sooner you get in the game the better off you are because to your point you can become priced out of the market and that's a problem for people and i i mean that's i'm not surprised by that because affordability actually is something that i'm concerned about all the time for my clients right and I think it's just about getting creative. I like to believe that there is a solution for every single buyer out there. It's just a matter of matching the right buyer with the right house in the right scenario. Like I've worked with first-time home buyers who have very, really, like honestly rough budgets and just like found a rental that's been sitting there for 20 years in a mid-century modern neighborhood and like connected the dots. And it may have taken me a year to put the deal together because of different circumstances. But like, if you can find the common ground between the buyer and the seller and get them to like do a deal, great, you know? Cause if the seller needs to like offload rental properties and then like the buyer just needs an opportunity, like it's, there are opportunities out there. So you have to think about it from a mindset of abundance, but the numbers, they, the numbers really speak to what's going on. And especially in the last year, I feel like within the COVID environment, we've kind of been operating in like a vacuum. That's the only way I know how to describe it. It's like there was a beginning and there will be a definitive end and things will change. I think after like we have herd immunity and everybody's vaccinated, right? I mean, it's not to say that demand in Denver will go down. That's not gonna happen. There's no bubble, right? But just think about the numbers, like within the last year alone in 2020, we had 18% price appreciation year over year, which is considerably changed what's affordable in this market. I mean, you're, we, we bumped above, above 600K is the average price point for a Denver home. And so for a lot of people, like especially single people, I think it's like a lot less affordable, whereas like it's a little bit more approachable for a couple if they're both on the loan, but even then it's tricky, right? So especially within the last month, I really like to just to explain like within, you know, since we've turned the corner into 2021 to explain what's been going on in the market, this is kind of what I tell people. We're down 65% year over year in terms of available inventory, right? So all of the agents are fighting over the remaining 35%. Plus you add in this market condition of the fact that like all of these people have like been laid off and they're like, oh, I'm going to get into real estate. So now you have like, I mean, Denver is already the most overbrokered city in the entire country. I think we have like 44,000 people have their real estate licenses of which like 22,000 might be like active. That's a lot of people, right? So you have all these new brokers and we're all fighting over this like a little amount of inventory. And then on top of that, you on the buy side, all of a sudden demand like basically quadruples. You have four buyers for every active listing on the MLS, which is kind of insane. I mean, for the gems, that's actually a, a misrepresentation because there's way more than that. But we're talking for like the stuff that either is in like bad condition or is not really even desirable. Like right now, downtown condos, right? It's more of a buyer's market than a seller's market. But like technically there's four buyers on average for every single property. So, you know, I mean, that's a pretty crazy number, but really what I like to think of and like, I mean, of course I'm in speaking about this, I'm trying to be compliant with all of the new coming soon stuff, right? With the National Association, the National Association of Realtors and all the things that have changed as of last September. But the data that's like the most interesting to me is that the, the number of closed listings or yeah, closed properties in our market has exceeded the amount of active listings in the MLS. Meaning that more people are finding off market inventory 
and putting deals together that way. So just because it's active in MLS doesn't mean that like that's all you have to look at, right? Like there's there's other things out there and it seems like people are just getting really crafty and finding ways to get buyers into properties even if they don't hit the MLS, which is a really hopeful statistic for me because it shows me that there, there is opportunity out there. You just have to find it. But the like average showing count too is like up like to like 20 or 25 showings per property, which I mean, for some is even low, right? But that's just right. on average. Whereas last year it was much lower than that. It was like 10 or 11. And so it's just like, yeah, it's pretty nuts. It's been a wild time out there, but I do truly feel that active inventory will open up more after herd immunity is achieved because home won't be as important, right? Like, and I could be wrong. I like to, sometimes I like to just- Nice caveat, just in case. Yeah, like, hey, take this with a grain of salt. But I do think buyer demand will not slow down in this market. I think the buyers who are actually serious and are like here to make it happen will get it done. And they'll, you know, you have to be aggressive. You have to keep trying over and over and over again. You can't let failure get you down. And like the people who really want it will get in. There's a lot of like looky-loo people too right now who call and be like, Oh, like I really need to get out of this state. But like I'm thinking about either like Colorado or like Salt Lake City or like maybe Washington. And you're like, okay, but what do you want? <laughs> like you have to be serious, you know? So there's a lot of people like kind of interested, but the real people who like are like legitimate buyers with enough cash and like are serious will eventually get into properties. It's just a process. So like they have to understand that you have to start the conversation much earlier than you want to get into homes. But I do like to think that like once home becomes less of a focus and there's less fear around the COVID pandemic and you know, we all have herd immunity and things start to open up and there's more to do and you can go out to restaurants and go back to concerts and stuff like that. I just think that there will be a lot more inventory, hopefully in this market. I know we've been in a seller's market for a long time. So it's not to say it will be even balanced at that point, but mm -hmm. I don't think the constraints will be nearly as bad as they are right now. It's hard so, to say, but I think prices will continue to go up though. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I think the demand for Denver is, you know, always going to be around the, the the lifestyle that's associated with the state is, you know, health and there's skiing nearby and, you know, we, we've got everything. Um, yeah. Great sports teams, you know, whether or not they win championships is <laughs> the point. Right? Yeah. a guy named Brad Inman, um, you know, big real estate publisher, um, brilliant real estate mind said, I heard him say one time at a conference, the riches are in the niches. And that's always stuck with me because whenever I you know, get to speak with people who are just super successful in real estate, it's because that they, they focus and they, you know, they stay in a lane. Your, your skill sets are diverse. Your sphere of influence is you know, very large and your network is huge, but they, they focus on something and really hone in on that. That seems like you've really done that um, with, with mid mods and, and with yeah. architecture and those unique. Can you talk about... Um, you know, just speak about what that's been like, what getting into that and how you, you kind of keep that enthusiasm, you know, strong. And then I'd love to hear about like marketing that, right. Um, yeah. Being able to market that expertise and market that specialty um, because you're a real estate agent, you can help anybody find a home, but you're really, you know, focused. So kind of just speak to that. Yeah. Well, I think I'm really lucky in the fact that like my background is in marketing, right. Cause I've been able to apply pretty much 10 years of everything that I've learned about marketing, social media, algorithms, whatever, like what have you, it's like, I've been able to apply that to my business and I'm not even close to like what my overall vision of my business is. Right. Like I've only scratched the surface at this point in terms of what I know I'm capable of doing. I would say 
um, in terms of the niche itself, it really provides people an opportunity to like have, a, it's like they almost know that they can talk to you about a certain thing and that's how you're going to relate. Right. So like, again, even if my clients don't end up actually closing on a mid-century modern home, maybe they have like an affinity for like vintage clothing or they really like cool, like retro mid-mod furniture. And it's like something that they can talk to me about. And it's a really great way for them to feel like they can relate to me. And that is where I've seen a lot of value in the niche itself and really expanding on that. I mean, I also just tapped into like a particular community that is like absolutely ravenous and very opinionated about design and preservation and re like remodeling and like the whole spectrum of things. And everybody falls very on different sides of the spectrum in terms of their, their trade-off of like, what is the trade-off between historic preservation and like updating now that these homes are kind of like getting to a point of aging, right? But it's been really helpful for me in figuring out like what I need to do. And I think, I mean, social media in particular is where I've found the most success in terms of basically just like finding new clients and converting. But then on top of that, like I wanna have all of the systems in place too. So it's like, I have a list of all of the mid-century modern homes in the Denver area, not just in the neighborhoods, but like weird one-off ones. Like I'll like drive past a house, stop, write down the address and like add it to my database. You know what I mean? Or like, I'll be like looking through Google maps, um, street view, right. Or, and like find one and write it down. Or um, like, if I just like learn about another pocket, it's like, I want to know where all the inventory is. And it doesn't even matter like what the niche is. Like, I mean, I have mine specifically from mid-century modern but like anyone can do this right like in your own market broker it's like you can figure out where all the homes are and there's value in that because most people don't know right and I've done a lot of like historic research I've gone to the library and looked through all of the Diane Ray books that talk about like the iconic mid-century modern homes in this neighborhood who was the architect when were they built where are they what is the address what is the neighborhood what is the photo you know and like I've looked at all of the different neighborhoods and I know a lot about them and so like I've done my research and I wouldn't say that every broker has done that but I think because of that I've found success and I've been very smart in the way that I've not only niched out but I've scaled and it's it's helped people really relate to me and feel like I'm approachable if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And, yeah. and you, you know, you mentioned social media. Um, what is, what is the, the, the mid mod, was it mid mod dream homes, correct? Yeah, my handle is mid mod dream homes. Right. Um, which I feel like I'm like, I started following it kind of early on uh, yeah. and it just seems like it's exploded. Um, talk totally. about what, yeah, talk about what you do there, you know, like just from a, yeah. you know, almost on a giving advice standpoint, because uh, it's regular content. It's always insightful. Sometimes you put some listings up there. Sometimes it's, you know, you speaking, kind of speak to your, your approach to marketing there. Well, I think I have a pretty specific voice, which is why I don't know if I could like ever shop it out. Right? <laughs> like, or like give it to anyone else to kind of manage. I, it's what it started as. I've learned a lot actually, if I'm being honest, but what it started as and what it's become are two very different things. In the very beginning, I was like, just so passionate about the design. I would find like really cool pictures that I liked and like repost them and stuff like that. And I've, <laughs> I've since learned a lot about like 
copyright law and compliance and like, you know what I mean? And getting written approval if I'm going to be sharing listing photos and things of that nature. And, um, you know, just making sure that I'm following all the rules. Right. But to your point, um, I like to have a mix. So it's like, I like to share and truthfully, I like to have some standards when it comes to the listings I share. It's like, I better be really jazzed about the house if I'm going to share it. Right. Cause like, there's so many out there. I'm not really trying to be like the person who shares all the listings. I know where they all are. I track all the inventory. I have spreadsheets for that stuff. You can find all of the current inventory live on my website. Like that's fine. When it comes to social, I'm, it's really about like, what is the best design? What's out there that like gets me excited? Like what, when it hits the MLS, what are the homes where I'm like, whoa, like that came out of left field. The architecture is insane. Like some of these, the state properties, especially like last year, people are like ravenous about them. Like it's unbelievable to me. Like the house will need like 200K more and people are just like, but it has- 500 over asking, here's cash. Yeah, right? <laughs> but because it has original features that are intact that haven't been destroyed or ripped out, which is like the case with a lot of these homes, right? And because it hasn't been on the market ever since 1965 and it's incredible iconic architecture that will stand the test of time people freak out and those are the homes that i really want to share um really just any or even if it's like re, like a really nice remodel like something that's just been done really well the finishes are great like it's got to be something that you're like really jazzed about yeah but then on top of that again because i've done i've been down the rabbit hole of like doing so much research about these different neighborhoods and the architects and the history and the design like i like to educate as a piece of my content strategy right so it's like how do i like tell people what i know because for me I, I always just feel like if you know something, you're doing a disservice to other people if you don't share that information and you don't educate people. And especially with this particular home product, I think there needs to be some more education for like for investors, for example. Like, hey, if you buy a mid-century modern home and you put a barn door in it and you paint it gray, you're actually gonna get less money out of the flip than if you like keep the original mahogany wood paneling and you design it really cool and put great furniture in it and stage it. And, but like also upgrade the kitchen and like put like the right type of cabinetry in there, you know, things like that, that are like, it's like modern or contemporary or whatever, like that fits the style. There's just like such a lack of knowledge around like what to do with those types of homes or even people who have lived in them. Like some people live in those homes and they, they have for decades and they have no idea idea what they're living in. It blows my mind. And so there's just like such a lack of like education, especially with this particular home product. And I would say of really homes of any architectural type, right? Like you could be talking about a tutor and like some people are just like, it's like, if you're not respecting the original architecture or like my parents live in a Southern style home, same thing. Like if they're not designing the house to match the exterior architecture, like you're doing the house a disservice, right? That's just how I feel about it. And so um, there's a lot of that, but then again, like, I just want to show people like Denver is the coolest city on the, on the planet basically. And I've had some mixed reviews in terms of like layering and lifestyle content and stuff like that. But like Denver really is super cool. And I want people to know like all around the world and all around the country that like this place has great architecture. I mean, there's also some awful homes in our market, <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, I want them to know that this place is like, I know, oh, I know. 
like I want them to know that this place is a destination and that like we have really great architecture and design here and I do actually feel that in my conversations with some of my past clients who are la like landscape architects or you know work for large architecture firms I do truly feel that Denver's becoming a pretty major design city like it's being put on the map. It's still a little up and coming in that sense in, on a global scale, but like we're definitely getting there and people are moving here who actually care about that stuff. Whenever but, I think about Denver's architecture, I always go back to uh, the Denver Art Museum, both the, yeah. the, the Giaponte, the yes. original like castle one, and then yeah. Daniel Liebeskin's. And yeah, yeah. I, I love like, to me, both those speak to Denver like so much because it's like, one is just so historical and like there's just so much value to this like and I don't you know I'm using the wrong words but this like traditional like look and then you've got you know Liebskins which looks like a Titanic after it hit an iceberg and flipped over right like it's just it's beautiful but I to me that those provide such a strong foundation for you know I think museums speak to their their cities um, a lot. It's like a vacation of a city is in a museum. And so I think that speaks to like exactly what you're saying about architecture being so fundamental here, but it not necessarily being known for it, right? Oh yeah. Well, and I love those. I love both of those buildings, right? The Giopanti building is so iconic, but like it also just went through like a major restoration because again, it needed it, right? But it's a, a classic mid-century building and they're making it super cool and adding some like functional upgrades to it and that's just kind of how a lot of the mid-century stuff like that's what it needs right now right but to your point it's like we have a really cool fusion and that's actually my my approach like I definitely know brokers who are really far on the side of preservation for mid-century modern and I know brokers who are very far on the side of contemporary and I like to think that I kind of fall in the middle like I like I really like a fusion of old and new with both I think that it's like, do you really want to move into a mid-century modern home that has like, you know, carpet from the 1960s in it? Like, I mean, if you want to keep that, you're more than welcome to, but like some things do need to be upgraded, right? But at the same time, like keep the stuff that's really cool and like bring in some vintage stuff that's like a novelty item, right? But then even in terms of like Denver architecture, like we're getting that new building. I want to, it looks like a, like Gaudi, like, <laughs> like crazy it's like I, I don't know exactly what it's called I think it's I forget what it, it might be called like oculus or something like that but it's supposed to be slated to be built on I want to say 14th um downtown and it's like a game changer in terms of architecture and design for Denver like we're it's like a building that will put us on the map for both of those things right and like yeah. that's really cool it's exciting to see like new developments slated or even like I think about um you know what's about to happen with um, the River Mile. I know it's like a little bit different, but like the, the people who are basically tasked with redesigning a second downtown area for Denver, like they have, you know, they've lived in Chicago, they've lived in San Francisco, they understand good design and they know that they need to integrate that into their plans with all of this rezoning and like using what's there with the river and like the nature around them and integrating that into the design. Like that is really important to me, but I think I see projects like that slated and I get super excited about like what the future of the city is gonna look like. With new development on the horizon, I think, um, you know, fingers crossed, it's like, that'll open up some inventory, right? Like we'll oh. be able to, <laughs> we'll be able to, you know, I wouldn't say a it'll go back, the prices aren't gonna drop, but it's just gonna, it's gonna open it up. It's gonna make Denver even more in demand, just like you're saying. Yeah, and like to some extent too, I know this is tricky, but I do kind of have a heart as well to like 
work with some on a national scale who like have built good home products that are mid-century modern in design who are like more authentic like I feel like people in our market no offense to some of the other builders but like and I'm not gonna call them out by name but we know that they exist like people have like tried to do the mid-century modern thing like I've showed so much new construction where they even have like a mid-mod model and I'm like literally nothing about this house is a mid-mod except maybe like a slanted roof line you like think it's a mid-mod it's like nothing about it is like you did not take time in what you built and designed to think about like what is the brickwork I'm gonna look like so that it matches this time period or like they it's just not thoughtful they're like oh let's just put like a Sputnik chandelier in it and it's a mid-mod it's like no it doesn't work like that you have to actually put more thought into it so I but there are other builders on the national scale who have done this well and I do have a heart to work with them and kind of bring some of those home products that are new construction into our market because they do exist. The opportunities are kind of few and far between. They're really tricky, but like, I would like to provide people with opportunities because I think a lot of people like the allure of new construction and what that provides, right? You're moving into a brand new home. You don't have to like do anything. Everything's turnkey, right? And the tricky part about this specific type of architecture is all these homes were built in the fifties and sometimes you need to do a $200,000 remodel. So if you would be willing to pay a premium for this architecture type, but it was like new construction and you didn't have to do any of the work. And this, it was actually like authentic to the design. It wasn't just some like makeshift thing that is recycled, right? right. <laughs> it actually looks like a real mid-century modern home on the inside with all of the cool features, but it's new construction. I think there's like a crazy opportunity there that's just totally untapped in our market right yeah. now, you know? I'm I mean, I think your, your passion for the subject is, you know, I think very clear and obviously, you know, very, very attractive to people who are, you know, have even the inkling of interest in pursuing something like that. Do you find that you're attracting, like, you know, through your marketing, through your social media, you're attracting buyers who are, you know, only want mid-century modern or are they kind of coming in, like you said before, and they think that's what they want, but then you can kind of steer them and, and help them find exactly what they need. What, what, what kind of, what kind of buyers are, are coming to you, Stephanie? Well, it's kind of both. I mean, I would say for the most part, if they reach out to me, they have some sort of interest in mid-century modern. And they usually love to share the story with me. They're like, I lived in Chicago and I'm so inspired by the Frank Lloyd Wright designs. And like, I love it. And this is why I love this. And this is why I want this kind of home. And some people are just dead set on mid-mod. Like that's just all they want. And it's, those are actually, <laughs> I hate to say they're my favorite clients, but they, they kind of are my favorite clients because they like want something special. And to me, it's like more of a fun process if, they want something special because I want to help them find it. And it just is more invigorating for me, right? I think that what's been happening is like, well, most of my clients, I would say like my best clients are usually, they either have an affinity for designer architecture or they are designers or architects themselves one way or another, right? So sometimes they just don't care. Like they really think they want a mid-mod, but like really what it's kind of come down to as of late is like, I mean, for example, I think there was like 137,000-ish like homes built in the 1950s in Denver. But overall, there's maybe, and you know, TBD on the number because I'm still tracking, right? But like maximum, maybe between like 8,000 to 10,000 true mid-century modern homes and of which like a bunch of them have been kind of destroyed and whatever, right? So the inventory is really, really limited. And then the market that already has extremely limited inventory is provided a pretty major challenge because 
if you want to mid-mod, it's pretty hard, unless you're finding, again, off-market opportunities, it is very, very hard to find that right now. Like, you know, and in past years, there have been some neighborhoods that have high turnover, and some of those neighborhoods will continue to have high turnover, which is good. But, you know, if you're looking for, like, some gem cream of the crop home, it's like, you might get one opportunity a year where that kind of house pops up, right? Especially in, like, luxury price points, like, people are pretty specific about they, what they want or they want a larger size or they want, um, you know, they want something really special that's been remodeled in a specific way. that's completely turnkey. And I mean, I've even seen mid-century modern homes in our market that are like $1.5 million fixer uppers. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or like even same with Boulder, like Boulder, you know, you can find a really cool house for like 2 million, but you can also find stuff that's like at one, two to one five that just needs a total gut job from the inside out you know you have to be willing to take on work so i think i've been like pretty limited with inventory like as it is it's already limited inventory and that's why it sells for a premium but then on top of that you layer on this like lack of inventory and so it's just been like even more tricky but that's why like i have a process for whenever the inventory pops up like i am the first to know about it like if not knowing before it hits like open market, right? Like I am very on top of tracking inventory on a daily, if not hourly basis. Restoration versus renovation. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Again, I'm going to kind of err on the side of like being in the middle, right? I don't really think there's anything wrong with a renovation, but I just think that like a lot of what we call in the mid-century community purists, a lot of purists are like pretty intense about renov like they get they get really triggered by the word renovation because they think that it means someone's going to completely gut it put like really ugly carpet in it paint it gray and put a barn door in it right like that's their fear or and I mean to be fair even in like some neighborhoods that are on like the national register of historic places you know like they there's no process sometimes for like filtering out what a homeowner is going to do to their house and what's like acceptable there's no like review board right mm -hmm. so the tricky part about that is you know and and for some historic districts in denver they actually have that they have like a, a design committee that you have to like go through in order to change your house but for a lot of these like mid-century modern neighborhoods they don't have that so some of them have been really botched like even in neighborhoods that are on the national register and it's like really kind of a sad thing right and so that sucks. And to come back from that, especially like if it's bad design, like it's like expensive and it is hard. And I hope that someday someone will see those homes and just take it on as a project and bring it back to what it should be. But like, sometimes it doesn't happen that way, you know, especially if the house is passed through different homeowners who just don't know what they have. So it's a bummer. And I guess I feel like I kind of resonate with the purists in a sense, because like that resonates with me and I understand them because I, I don't want that to happen. Like I don't want these homes to be completely botched. I also don't want them to fall into disrepair either though. So that's why I kind of feel that renovation is not a bad thing because again, this like housing inventory is really reaching this like age limit of like, it's just falling apart. If you don't take care of it, like it will not work. And it's really cool if you can find a house that has like, I get so excited when I go to showings and it has like 
original metal cabinets or has like the original tile work or something like it's super fun like and I love seeing that stuff if it's in good shape I think is the filter for me and like the criteria that I look at like it needs to be livable and clean and nice because the truth is like it gets to a certain point where that stuff gets really gunky or it doesn't work right like if you have a met like a, an oven that's like original cool but like if it doesn't work and it kind of defeats the purpose. Like it has to be replaced anyways. And it just becomes deferred maintenance. And the next buyer, like they don't want to deal with that. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's cool and it's a novelty item. And I think it's important to keep the really awesome things like the exposed beams. Like I like to, I mean, some people like to paint them. I like the natural stuff. Like I like the indoor outdoor connection, the natural feel of all these homes. I love original mahogany. I love like a lot of the original features, but like, you know, a lot of these homes also didn't have great insulation. Sometimes you have to do that. I think there's a way where you can like redo and renovate things, but still like stay period specific. So like if you have to rip out original mahogany wood paneling, then maybe drywall over it, do the right amount of insulation, but then like replace it with something that looks very similar, right? Mm -hmm. um, but like some homeowners, like they don't have a choice. Like I have a good friend who owns an incredible iconic home in a pretty like well-known mid-century modern neighborhood and it just so happened that like she had to redo her entire kitchen that had these incredible metal cabinets but like she had to tear them out because she had galvanized steel pipes like they were corroded her water supply was awful and it's like she didn't want to tear that stuff out but like sometimes you have to just to get to what you need to do and like replace stuff and make it functional again you know mm -hmm. and so she just did it in a way that you know matched her style and that's great like it's her house house and if you have a problem with it you can buy the house <laughs> you know what I mean like for the people who like out about like watch and reasons it's like yeah but like did you buy the house did you right. do the work like right. okay like if you own the house it is your house you have yeah. your choice it is your sacred space like you can do whatever you want to with it so That's total beauty is in the eye of the beholder yeah absolutely and it's like do I want them to fall into disrepair no do I want them to be totally messed up no but like we, we can only control so much, right? So I think there's a fine line, but I think restoration is a great word for it. I mean, the, the word trace around it is whatever, right? Yep. But I do, I do think that a lot of these homes need a lot of work right now. So props to the people who are going in there and like spending money and doing it and yep. doing it right, you know? So my final question, we like to ask all of our guests this. Uh, if, you, if there was one thing that you could change, what do you think that would be? In my career, in my first year, I really wish, um, I was like, I, I was taught to live in, you know, have a mindset of abundance and whatever, but like, and I was trying to like do that and integrate that and just, you know, get after it and do a really good job in this business. But I definitely think I was very fear-based the first year I was in this business. I have grown up a lot since I have started real estate. Like, in a pretty incredible way. Like, I think I've had to just deepen my like emotional intelligence, my, my maturity, right? And I've, I've learned a tremendous amount, but that first year I was, I was like a little scared. Like, I didn't really know if I was gonna be able to make this work. And I mean, there's still moments sometimes where you have that happen, right? But like, in general, like, I mean, you can totally crush it in this business and do so well for yourself and like build a lot and provide a lot of value for a lot of people. That's really important to me. In terms of the actual home buying process, I guess I wouldn't really take back my first time home buying experience the way that it was because 
if I hadn't had that happen to me, I wouldn't be in the business, right? So I'm very grateful that that actually happened the way that it did. And again, some homes are meant to be forever homes and some are meant to be lessons, right? But in terms of the actual process itself, like it would have been nice to have had like a full A team of great people who were on my side and helping me. And um, I think it's really important for people going into that first time home buying experience to have a very real set of expectations in terms of what the market's going to do and what they need to do to win. Um, and just make sure that they have, like, they need to be in the best financial situation possible to put their best foot forward in every scenario, because the truthfully, the people who are winning right now are the people who have the most liquid cash, whether that's cash putting down on the house or cash for an appraisal gap. I mean, it's truly coming down to appraisal gaps right now, you know? And so it's like the more you have to spend on an appraisal gap and the more liquid cash you have, like the better position you are off, you know, in. And so I would say definitely save, save, save to my first time home buyers, like just save as much as you can. Cause also even when you close on the house, like there's a lot of expenses that come up right away. Like that you just have to dress. Like if you didn't get a certain thing in inspection and I truly try to make sure that like they get everything that they need to feel comfortable to move into the house upon inspection. Mm-hmm. But like say they don't get something that's really important to them or they know about a problem and they have to address it after they close. Like you need to have the liquid cash available to like address those problems, you right. know? So I think that that's kind of how I'd like to think about it now. Great, Stephanie, yeah. uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Thank you for inviting me. I sincerely appreciate it. Yeah. You've been listening to Broker Insider, the podcast where we interview the leaders in real estate and technology. I'm your host, Britt Chester, Director of Marketing Success with Tribus. We are joined by Stephanie Kroll, Broker Associate with Mile High Modern in Denver, Colorado. Be sure to follow her on Instagram at midmoddreamhomes. And be sure to subscribe to Broker Insider wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.